Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 13th, 2015. This is episode 1573 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, I took yesterday off. Tuesday I took off to spend with my wife. Uh, yesterday represented 14 years of marriage, and the truth is that this fall will be 20 years of our spending part of our life together. So that's a pretty cool thing. And yesterday I was going to do the show and I was sitting in here about this time and thought about getting started. And we had planned to go out later in the day and I realized how late in the day the show goes and all the other things that I was thinking I was going to do yesterday. And I decided, you know what? There is no point to bust in your ass for all these years to build a business like this If you can't once in a while, say the hell with it and put the people you love before the job. So that's what I did. And thank you to all of you who wished us well for our anniversary. And I hope that sets an example for you, whether it's a personal day off or whatever. Occasionally there's times to just say the hell with it. Take care of the people that you do it for in the first place. Otherwise, you're a slave to the system. That's actually what we're going to be talking about today. And if you saw the title of today's show, you might wonder how that works out. We're going to talk about the difference in trying to build systems that are sustainable versus systems that are regenerative and what that's really all about and how much of what we, we passively call sustainable is actually regenerative and uh, much of what we call sustainable isn't even that and how those those concepts are specifically used to control the minds of the general population. And if I can control your mind, uh, by de fact, I, I, I control your actions. I'm going to tell you about a huge lie that's been sold to you today. One that's probably affecting many of you, even many of you who consider yourself to be sustainably minded, environmentally conscious, even some of you that think I'm wrong for some of my views on environmentalism that... I don't believe as much BS as you do. So therefore, your BS is superior to my BS, and therefore, I am not a true environmentalist. I would call myself a raving environmentalist. And the reason that I feel that way is because I think I actually understand what our purpose here is. And I think what many of the people of this, this country and the world, in fact, have been sold on is that we don't have a purpose. We are a problem. If I can get you believing you are a problem... I can get you believing a lot of things. And I can exert an awful lot of control over your mind, your actions, your life, your children, your parents, the society you live in. If I can make you think you're a problem versus a solution, I can completely control you. What I'm going to tell you today, some will take and go, eh, whatever. What it should do is anger you. It should anger you to the core of your very being. You should be infuriated on the lie that's been sold to society by the end of today's show. And it should lead you to your own choices for your own positive actions. That's what I'm hoping. Before I get into that, let's do uh, our due diligence and take care of our sponsors since they do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you, on average anyway, five days a week. 
Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey Guy, the actual one, the only Berkey Guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey Guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting and if there's a problem that gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, Directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive in the numbers 21 followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1573 because it's episode 1573. I have Into the Woods, the Werewolf of Dole. Now, why is reverent art so irrelevant? Why is reverent, reverent, not relevant, reverent art so irrelevant? Inquiring minds want to know, and I have a general's duty to duck. I am going to read Into the Woods, The Werewolf of Dole, because it ends up having something to do with what we're going to talk about today. 
Here is that segment. Several children have gone missing in the woods. Some are found dead, chewed to pieces. One little girl is attacked by a wolf and escapes with her life. The townspeople are convinced there is a werewolf in the woods, so they get a court order to search the woods and kill the beast. It reads in part, In court, desiring to prevent any greater damage has permitted and does permit to assemble with pikes, halberts, arbuses, and sticks to chase and pursue the said werewolf in every place where they may find or seize him and to tie him and to kill him without incurring any pains or penalties. September 13th, 1573. Law of the state. Anyway, two more, two months later, they catch a hermit. Giles Garner, in his human form, and his wife, Apolline, Giles confesses to murdering several children and eating a few of them. His wife apparently ate some of the children, too, so they are both burned at the stake. Was Giles really a werewolf? There is a congenital condition that causes hair to grow across the entire face, but Giles didn't have that. In reading the report, it is possible that he was a serial murderer, similar to Jeffrey Dahmer, who ate his victims. The bottom line is that these werewolf hunters were government-sanctioned mobs. Government officials must use care when attempting to accommodate the public. We like plain-speaking politicians, but in their official capacity, they are constrained by their duties and common sense to avoid rabble-rousing. And then Alex Shrugged has a quote. While we try to make sure that they were protected from the cars and other things that were going on, we also gave those who wish to destroy... Space to do that as well, end quote. The mayor of Baltimore at an official press conference of the 2015 riots. I've said all I have to say about the Baltimore riots. You can look up that episode if you want to. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you if you haven't heard it before, so I'm not going to go there. I'm going to talk about something totally different. When you look at this occurrence in history, first of all, the state decreed that werewolves were real. You understand that the state, the government, said that there are werewolves and permitted the people to assemble with pikes, halberts, arquebuses, and sticks to chase and pursue said werewolf in every place where they may find or seize him to tie him and to kill him without incurring pains or penalties. Did that make werewolves real? No. Just as I've said before that the government can pass a law saying that you'll get a rainbow farting unicorn and no unicorn will show up. And they can pass a law that says your unicorn several times a year will fart a rainbow for you. Down it will slide your guardian angel, angel who will grant you three wishes. And that won't happen either. But this actually really cuts to the crux of today's show and why this is part of the insurrection. What this definitely did do is make werewolves more real to many people and justify violence due to that reality. Now, here's what happened. The truth reinforced the lie. They found a crazy old dude living off in the woods with a wife that murdered and ate children who confessed to it. Let's assume he wasn't confessing because they jabbed a, a spike in his ass or something, that he literally did do this. From what I've read on the follow-up stuff and all, it sounds like he did. Now, werewolves must be real. Not only does the state say they're real, we've found one. We've seen the horrors of what he's done. He must have bitten his wife and the moon rose turned her into one too because she ate the kids too. 
this is a sick, twisted thing, we must burn these people at the stake. Assuming this confession was legitimate, probably some of the few people in the history of the world that literally did earn being burned at the stake. But that action, while apparently somewhat just for this type of behavior in the 1500s, further reinforced the belief werewolves are real. The states, first we had the action that indicated a werewolf. Then we went to the state and they legitimized the werewolf. Then we hunted the werewolf. And we found something that looks like a werewolf. Then we extracted vengeance. And it was sanctioned by the state. And the state kept its word. Because the state said to tie him and to kill him without incurring any pains or penalties. And no one, except the werewolf, incurred the pains and penalties. Might makes right. I want you to think about that when we get into today's main topic. Before we do that real quick, just let me remind you, if you love this show, you want it to be here forever, the best way you can help make sure that happens is to be part of the Members Support Brigade. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to sign up. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Responders all can email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with service discount TSPC in the subject line, and I will send you a discount code to save money on your membership, which is already a great deal, if you email me when, before, or not after you join. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. So, last night I was watching a movie called Inhabit that prominently features, probably is the, the, the biggest featured person in it, and the lead-off talent featured in it is Ben Falk from our expert council. And he was talking about this very thing, and he's always talked about this subject, that what we've been convinced is that what we must do as a species is do less bad rather than do good, and whether rather than regenerate, be sustainable. And that really resonated with me, and Ben and I have talked on the air about that before, and it's something I've always really thought of. And I kind of took it to another level last night, after I heard his part of this movie. And this is really not where he went, but it's where I'll start where he started. And I'm going to go from there to what I think is a much higher level of insurrectionist thinking. And remember, um, while my theme song says The Revolution is You, I actually feel the time for revolution has passed. A revolution is a rapid change in power. It can be peaceful or violent, but it's a rapid shift in power. And it's characterized by transferring power from one group to another, which is still a centralized authority. And what I'm beginning to realize is all of our, all of our, our problems to be solved need to be solved through decentralization. So we have to have an insurrection, a peaceful insurrection, but an insurrection no less. And I'll finish today with a quote by Permaculture's founder that talks about that. But an insurrection takes power from the group that controls the power and then hands the power in pieces and parts to the insurrectionists themselves. An insurrection is where we claim the power for ourselves and our own individual liberty. And, and that's what I really want to talk to you about today and understanding how to do that. So this is part of the insurrectionist series, or known as the insurgency in the cloud tag, tag cloud. Um, first of all, let's start out with sustainable and regenerative defined and what the difference is. Sustainable basically means to keep things the way they are, to do no further damage and to set up systems 
that can sustain themselves. So sustainable agriculture doesn't really require us to change much other than to fine-tune some things so we can continue indefinitely. If we can continue to farm 10,000-acre fields of corn indefinitely, it by its very nature becomes sustainable. Now, we've run up against some hard facts that tell us it's not sustainable. But with some tweaks, you know, we're talking dozens of generations, and in our mind as human beings, that's perfectly sustainable. Because someone else will figure out how to fix it in the future. That could be done. It's not that we can't keep doing this at all. There's horrendous consequences to it, but we could make farming far more sustainable without actually improving anything. It's, it's, it's the concept of doing less harm or stopping harm at a stasis level where we can be in a situation where, yeah, we're screwing things up, but not bad enough to have it fall apart, and therefore we can keep it going. A lot like we run the United States economy and monetary system. Many would tell you the Federal Reserve is not a sustainable system. I would tell you since it's been in place for over 100 years, it's as sustainable as any modern economy has ever been. Now, it's had multiple crashes, but they've been seen as dips and recoveries, and the same system was used to fix them with adjustments and adaptations. Yet there's no doubt the United States monetary system does massive harm and is a system of massive theft of the wealth of the American people. Inflation is actually the extraction of the value of existing money by the creation of new money, and it's a hidden tax on the American people, and the Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke himself admitted that, which means that every American is paying a tax on the property that is their cash. Every item that you own that's denominated in dollars is taxed every year without your knowledge or consent through inflation. That's sustainable, but it's not regenerative. It causes harm, but it does less bad than other systems that have been tried and failed much more quickly. It is sustainable. Sustainability is also always measured in time. So, When we want something to be infinitely sustainable, that's a tall order because we don't know what's going to happen next millennia, okay? Let alone next decade. So when we say sustainable with the human mind, whether we realize it or not, we're saying sustainable as far as we can think, not as far as timelines go. We don't even know if we'll be here to be sustaining something in the future. Who knows? Some virus might kill us all. It's not probable, but it's certainly possible. This is the thinking of sustainability. Less harm. And that means that we are a source of harm. We are a source of damage. That the human being itself is a virus on planet Earth. That's sustainability. That's what that means. We are such shitty beings that our only hope is to do less harm to the planet in such a way that our harm is small enough that the system can be sustained, and we can continue to exist as well. If that's what you believe, then honestly, the best thing you can do for the planet and the environment and everybody else you claim to be so worried about is take a Colt 45, stick it, not the beer, right, the old school Colt 45 that won the West, stick it up your, your in the roof of your mouth and blow the back of your head off and kill yourself so you stop doing any harm. And you can be 
recycled into the planet and stop draining resources because you're a resource sink. You will always do harm, and all you can hope to do is less harm. Therefore, the best thing you can do is kill yourself. And that is the underlying message of modern environmentalism and sustainability. And if you don't think that can F up your brain and F up your head and make you do dumb things and make you believe things that you shouldn't otherwise believe, then you have a real problem. Now, this is where people say, well, this guy doesn't care about the planet. He's a shill of Shell Oil Company. No, I hate Shell Oil Company. I despise the big corporatocracy, no matter who they are. Monsanto, Conagra, Bayer, Dow Chemical, Shell Oil... Exomo, all of them. GE, I despise them all. because of Not because of what they are, but because of how they operate through the apparatus of government. And they all use this methodology of convincing us that we need to be sustainable. Now, what does it mean to be regenerative? Regenerative is not a less negative force. It is a positive force. And if we are to be regenerative, then our impact actually becomes positive. And therefore, the more we do, the better things can become for us, for the environment, for wildlife, for everything. And that means that we are not a virus. We are not a disease. We are not a negative force. We are a positive force completely out of balance with the reality of what we are and therefore causing negative occurrences. So if we actually sought to be a regenerative force on the planet, where we went, instead of being damaged, would become better and improved. And not just for us, not just, oh, we can go in and figure out how to make vegetables grow with salt water and use salt to irrigate them and call it sustainable when that only means that the salinity in the land will continue to go up and up and up over time before the limit of that technology is reached. What if we could go into these places where the soil has become too salted and use certain species that already are adapted to that to remediate and build new soils that can grow crops that are somewhat salt tolerant, that success that forward so that that area actually becomes fertile ground again. That's regenerative. Sustainable is let's genetically engineer a plant to grow in the salt and irrigate it with ocean water or brackish water, thereby making the problem worse, but it's sustainable because it'll last as far as we can see or as far as we think we need it to go until the next technological innovation. So one actually continues to do harm, claiming to mitigate the harm, because the harm is impossible to avoid. And the other says, look at yourself. No matter what your religious beliefs are, for thousands of years, some of us without some beliefs say millions of years, this species has coexisted and co-evolved with this planet. And it is only truly in recent times that we've lost the instinctive way in which we've been really a proactive part of this environment. And people say, well, we hunted the mastodon to extinction and all. That's, that's a mouse fart of our existence. And it's also a point where 
our population density and our technology exceeded our ability to understand the impact. We now have the technology and the understanding of impact. There's no longer an excuse. We can now use the technology to gain positive impact for ourselves and for the planet. Now, you, I, I want you to really think about how critical this is, how important this is that we start understanding this for ourselves and teaching this to our children, that we are a positive force versus a negative force. How you think controls how you act. And therefore, if you think you can't do good, you won't. If my message to you is, all you can hope to do is less harm, that's what your goal will be. But if you think you can do good, then you will. Now, which group of people, if you're a power elitist, if you're part of the plutocracy, the corporatocracy, and the government at the highest levels, is easier to control. A group of people living in fear who believe that they are the problem and only the smarter people than them that control them and run them can tell them how to be less of a problem and the solution lies in controlling others' actions. Alright? Because that's what sustainable teaches you. We need to control the actions of all the bad people. You're doing the best you can. It's not perfect, but it's okay. There's people doing far worse than you And they're getting rich off it, and we need to take what they have and use it and force them to do the right things. That's sustainability. That's bureaucratic thinking inside the world of permaculture. That's committees. That's desk jobs. That's rules, it's regulations, it's code, and it's centralization. Sustainability is a pathway to centralized control. Since this person won't do what I think they need to do, I will make them through the use of force. I will take from them, make them comply, and use what I take from them to make somebody else comply. That's great unless I got it wrong. And like the government never gets anything wrong. The government doesn't get stuff wrong. No. The court, desiring to prevent the greater danger, has permitted and does permit to assemble with pikes, halberts, arbuses, and sticks to chase and pursue said werewolf in every place where they may find or seize him and to tie him and to kill him without incurring any pains or penalties. But our government doesn't do dumb shit like that anymore. We don't chase werewolves, do we? If I have to explain the irony there, you're not ready for it yet, so I'm going to continue on. But I want you to basically understand that key division. If I convince you that you're a negative force, you can't do good, all you can do is less bad, that becomes your goal. If I educate you to, not convince you, but educate you to the fundamental fact that you as a being can do good and are the most regenerative force that could possibly exist, then you'll take actions in line with that and you'll become in time impossible to control. Let's look at the lies of sustainability. First, maintaining a severely damaged system is possible and desirable. To sustain means to continue. Therefore, the goal of sustainability is to continue with things basically the way that they are, but to modify them so that they can keep going. So, sustainability leads to a place where we continue to have divisions between the classes. We continue to have a power elite. We continue to extract from the planet. 
And we just stop extracting at such levels that it becomes something that, for a time, remains far more sustainable. That's sustainability. And that not only is it possible to sustain a system that's already broken, that we would want to. A perfect example is a public education system. We need to fix it. We need to get, we can't have it, we can't, ha we can't lose what we have there. It's a broken system built on mid-1800s technology designed to control a society and to train children to become adults to work jobs that no longer exist. And we're trying to sustain that rather than evolve out of it, replace it, come up with 50 different solutions and let parents and children for themselves decide what is the best way to have their education. In other words, to decentralize education would be to fix it because it would allow the marketplace of actual ideas to compete for students. And we would judge the fruit of the tree or the tree by its fruit, right? We would say, this method is producing children that turn into adults that are really good at these things. Many of them would not be good at conformity, though, and swallowing the, the blue pill and believing whatever they're told for the rest of their lives. That's why it's resisted. That's why we want sustainability, because sustainability means status quo. Sustainable means the people in power, the people that control your life, are sustained in that control, and you're sustained under that control. Got it? But Jack, this is about environmentalism, not politics. Environmentalism, twisted, contorted environmentalism, has become one of the primary methods of political control in the world today. You're making decisions every day of your life. And you're holding yourself back every day of your life based on programming that's dripped into your brain since you were a little bitty child in kindergarten. And the older you are and the longer you've been without this knowledge, the more ingrained this is. And this is why there's a divide. You know, they say the divide between people that believe in global warming and, and don't believe in global warming based on CO2 is between Democrat and Republican. It's actually far more based on age. People that are 45 and older are far less likely to buy into it than people that are, let's say, 40 and younger. And there's this nebula in the middle there. Why? Because we remember all the past bullshit if we're a little bit older than you. All the lies of the past, all the ways it fell apart. We remember global cooling. We remember news reports. We remember climate models of the Ice Age coming back. We remember all that shit. We've seen this movie before. Right? And then those of you who buy into that have been convinced this is the only environmental issue that matters. There's 800 other things going on in the world totally destroying the planet that we could all look at together and go, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that, and we would all agree. Any sane, rational individual that wasn't a freaking psychopath, that wasn't really willing to destroy his grandchild's future for his own current enrichment, would agree. These are all bad. But the whole political apparatus has built the entire environmental issue around one key issue that's specifically divisive and impossible to prove. Can I prove that we're putting mercury into our oceans? You bet your ass. I can show it to you. 100%. Not with a model, not with a prediction. I can show you the level of the mercury. Does anybody doubt that mercury is a toxin? No. 
Can I prove to you that coal mining is putting sulfur into our groundwater and oxidizing our creeks and streams and destroying the ecosystems in them? Absolutely. It is absolutely impossible, impossible infinity to deny that that is and has occurred, is occurring and has occurred. Those two issues alone are huge reasons to reduce the use of centralized fossil fuel systems. But you don't hear anything about them. Why? Because everybody, if they were properly presented, would agree. There's no intent to change anything for the positive in all of this environmental crap coming out of government. It doesn't even matter which side's right. Understand, if you disagree with me and you're right, it still doesn't matter. Because they're still not going to change it. It's about control and division. And whatever side is right, as they begin to appear right, misinformation will be injected to make them appear wrong enough to keep the division in place. It's a method of control. That's what this all is. And words like sustainable, environmentally conscious, environmentally friendly, all denote that you are a negative force. This is the primary lie of sustainability especially when it comes out of the mouths of the people that are actually doing all the damage. You know, it all comes out of the people that do it. The, 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 the EPA wants to regulate, regulate your barbecue grill. They want to regulate your barbecue grill. While the mega corporations that pay the bills to the, the politicians that appoint the EPA officials and the politicians who control the EPA's budget are dumping mercury into our ocean, sulfur into our groundwater, and they don't do jack shit about that. They've made it look nicer, but they're still doing it. It's still happening, and it's accepted. We've come up with systems that reduce the amount of these contaminants to what we consider acceptable levels. But your barbecue grill might make you breathe too much smoke, so we want to make it cost a $1,000 instead of a couple hundred to protect you from something people have been using for years safely. This, this is the world we live in. This is sustainability thinking. The next is all environmental solutions need to be centralized. We need central authority. We need central control. And we need central distribution systems so that we can monitor everything and determine what is and isn't working. So agriculture is centralized. Pharmaceutical medicine is centralized. Education is centralized. Right, so it's it, this is this. You understand the pattern recognition here, even though we're talking about it from an environmental standpoint today. This is the pattern: all things that impact large numbers of people and can be used for control of the population need to be centralized. If we centralize them, not only do we control them, we control the marketing and the message around them, and we can tax them. So by centralizing medicine, we tax the crap out of it. Then we force insurance into that market, and we tax that too. And, and this is this is the entire pattern, is centralization. And, and they've taken that same pattern into the environmental world as it's become a key component of political control and convinced the general population that the way we should control environmental damage and pollution is to centralize everything. The distribution and treatment of water must be centralized. Because there's a water shortage. Because of you. 
You're a horrible person. Oh, but you're not that bad. It's really the guy with growing the cow. The cow drinks more water than you. The guy that grows the cow, he's the real bad guy. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, the almond guy. He's the... Oh, no, it's Nestle. Nestle put the water in a bottle and you drank it. That took water out of the system, even though it didn't. And it's the centralized system that's dumping billions of gallons of water that could be perfectly acceptably used for all of the things we need into the ocean, and then somebody tries to set up a system to capture the water, and government gets involved, and either it's illegal, or you need a permit for it, or some other obstruction gets in the way, because that's decentralization. So the method, message of sustainability is we need centralized authority, centralized control, and centralized solutions. That's a lie. The next one is high population density is environmentally sound. But Jack, they say they want to reduce the population of the planet. Yeah, and maybe even a little bit. They sort of kind of do, but no, they don't. Because every single one of their Ponzi schemes requires population growth. Why do you think they want to um, do this big thing with immigration and, and bring all of these people out from under the woodworks or whatever and into the system and whatever? That's why. Because the population growth isn't sufficient to kick all of their Ponzi schemes like Social Security down the road for another couple generations and keep them in office long enough to get their golden ticket retirements so that it becomes somebody else's problem. So, well, if we can just bump the legitimate population by 20 or 30 million and we create loopholes in that system that create another 20 or 30 million that legitimately, with air quotes, you can't see them, but I'm doing them, come into the nation over the next 10 or 20 years, and we put all of those people into the Ponzi scheme, then maybe the can will get kicked. The problem is we're eliminating the jobs that those people have traditionally done with automation at that lower level. So what the hell are they going to do when they get here? I don't know. We'll figure it out when it happens. That's sustainability thinking. As long as we can fix it for right now, we'll figure out how to fix the next piece later, and we'll sustain it. So... That's that's the first lie in there when you when they say they want lower populations. They don't. But what I mean by density is not they want 2 billion people in the United States. Though the logical progression of the Ponzi scheme requires that in time or the Ponzi breaks. That's just how Ponzi schemes work. But let that go. That's That's pretty far out that you have to go there. What I mean by high population density is they want to move everybody out of the, the, the rural communities and into the cities, and this is by their own admission, they want just enough of the rural farming communities left that they can get the majority of the soldiers to go and fight their wars from them. They want a pacified public in high density, and enough people that can be convinced with patriotism to go kill other people in other lands that are separated from that group, and large swaths of what they want to call wilderness, which is land we don't touch. Now, we've already damaged this land. Leaving it alone won't fix it. We can put it completely out of balance. And as long as we continue the practices that got it that way in the first place, it'll stay that way. And it also, again, it creates a separation between you and the planet. You're evil, you're bad, you're horrible, you're a virus... You should just kill yourself, but since nobody wants to do that, this is the best we can do. That is another lie of sustainability, that we should have highly densely populated cities, buildings a million feet tall, right? 
with, with, with hundreds of thousands of people living in them, with little hydroponic farms inside of them, completely isolated from the outside, few birds flying around like an arboreum to make you feel like it's nature. Uh, you have to take a train to get from one end of the building to the other. This is future sustainability in the mind of these idiots. You know why? If I put a hundred thousand people in a building, I completely control their lives. That's why. I'm creating a space station on planet Earth where you become convinced that your existence is tied to that building versus the planet it sits on. This is sustainable thinking. That's why they want more and more. And I've been to Chamber of Commerce meetings and stuff where they bring the eco people in and they always want to talk about increasing the density. Like, let's restore downtown so we can put a hundred thousand more people into this city and it's so much more sustainable and there's less infrastructure needed to support them. They all, they all piss and shit and it all goes to the same place and it's where most of that storm water is going. It's being wasted, mixed together while we talk about a drought. This is sustainable. And this is where sustainable thinking leads. This all stems from the next slide. We are not a natural part of the planet. We are basically an invasive species. Like human beings, we're never supposed to be here. And this is where people that are more secular like me and people that I know a large part of this audience are quite religious would completely agree with how absurd that is if you think about it. The religious community largely believes that humans were put here And that creation that was around them was given to them. And the people that are far, you know, I'm spiritual but not, not religious. I, I, I have a much more secular view. I believe that the planet evolved and we evolved with it. Well, either one of those views sees us as a natural part of this place. We're supposed to be here. The environmentalists that talk about sustainability from the corporatocracy from these upper echelon levels, act as if the whole planet was perfect. Everything was perfect. There were no, there weren't four mass extinctions before we even got here or anything. Okay? Uh, it ain't like that. It, there were, it was us. We showed up and shot all the Tyrannosaurus Rexes or something, right? So, <laughs> this is how they talk. There were four that we know of, mass extinctions before there was ever anything approaching a human being on this planet. They act like everything was perfect. The redwoods were singing, and the bluebirds were, you know, putting out poetry that, that was beyond what Shakespeare would do years later. And, I mean, it was just the greatest thing that ever existed. And then aliens brought us here, like a bunch of locusts, and let us loose on the planet, and we screwed it all up. And we've just now gotten smart enough to figure out that we were brought here by the aliens and that we're acting like a bunch of locusts, but we're locusts nonetheless. And we're going to be locusts, so we have to be less bad locusts. We have to be good, good little locusts that do less damage. That's how we act. Like, we're not native to this planet. It's absurd. And that our only hope is to do less bad. And the best thing we can do is die. That's the true message of sustainable. You're a resource drain... And therefore, the best thing you can do is kill yourself. And I've told like the wacko environmentalists that all the time, and they, they parrot all this same shit with a little bit more spin to it, and I say, well, then kill yourself. They're like, what? I'm like, well, if you think that we're that bad, and you're that committed to making the place better, you're not going to be able to fix what everybody else does. So kill yourself. You have free will. Go put a bullet in your head. In case you're suicidal, I don't really mean that. All right? I'm trying to make a point. 
But seriously, if you believe all this stuff, the best thing we can all do is die. We are the problem, is the message. We are the problem when we're incapable of being anything than a lesser problem. Now, the truth is that we can be and are meant to be a regenerative force. First and foremost, we are a native species to this planet. We are native to planet Earth. I don't think, I think if you want to be really technical, you can make a religious argument against that. But I think that you're just trying to if you really want to. You're not, you're not making the argument in the spirit of what I'm saying. In the world and not of it. I mean, that, I understand what, but that, that, that spiritual connotation doesn't mean that we're not part of this. It means not to be overly attached. It's actually far more Buddhist than the religion that it comes from if you actually interpret it properly. But we are native. This is our world. We're not native to the moon. We're not native to Venus. We're not native to Mars. We're not native to the sun. We're not native to Alpha Centauri. And no matter how many times you watch Ancient Aliens, we weren't brought here by the, the alien they called Ra and put on this planet. We evolved here. However you want to use the word evolved whether it's evolution of thinking and technology or the true evolution of the species, we evolved here. We're part of this place. And that means we have a place here. That means there's a reason that we're here. And it's not to screw everything up. Next, we're the only known species that can consciously improve the planet. And not in complex ways, not through geoengineering. We can dig a ditch that makes water perform hydrologically more beneficial to the landscape that it's on. And even though we take that to a much higher level with design, we can literally, as a species, comprehend, put a whole bunch of ditches in this place, and walk away, and scrub desert, in 80 years become stripped forest. There are other species that take certain actions that make things happen. Termites aerate soil, build mounds. These eventually, after they're, they're, they're left behind and the termites move on, uh, different plants grow into these mounds that otherwise would not be there. But the termite's goal is to have a place to live. It doesn't think, I'm going to build this mound and then we're going to abandon it for the sake of the environment and so that we can come back and live in a better place. It doesn't have that capability, and nothing does. The, the most intelligent creatures, I believe, on this planet are not the great apes. They're the, the, the great mammals of the sea, the dolphins and the whales. They do not have this capacity. They can't think that way. And even if they could, they don't have the mechanical dexterity and capabilities to do these things. They don't walk on two feet on planet Earth, and they don't have two hands with opposable thumbs to do this stuff. We've actually evolved not only with the ment mental ability to comprehend this, but the physical dexterity and the capability to develop technologies to not only do it, but do it faster. I can get a hundred people in a line and an A-frame level and dig one of these ditches, and we can put in a mile a ditch in a day easy. I can take a D6 or a D8 dozer, tilt the blade, and drive. 
I can take a grading machine set properly with a freaking GPS linked to outer effing space that knows the contour of the land and have the, the operator sit there in it to make sure it doesn't do anything wrong while it runs itself and put in miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of these systems. And that simple technology alone, if properly put in, along our Mississippi River, could completely stop the dead zone that forms at its delta every year in the Gulf Coast from all of the fertilizer that washes out of the fields that are being sustainably farmed. By the government's view of it anyway, it's sustainable if it only loses three tons or less of topsoil a year. Most of them do. Multiply that by a couple billion acres, though, and see what you get going down that river and out to our oceans. The largest export of the United States of America in material tonnage is topsoil. We export more topsoil than if you take ten other things that we export and add them together, we export more topsoil. And all of that nutrient goes down. Now, let me be clear. The, a system built like this could stop the damage to the river even if we didn't initially stop the damage to everything that's putting the, the, the contaminant in there in the first place, with a ditch. We could do this with a ditch. And we are so much more sophisticated than that. We are the only species that can come, like in, in my situation here, come onto a three-acre rectangle and in three years turn it from a brown lump two inches of black dirt sitting on rock into something lush and green by managing the behavior of animals like chickens and ducks and digging a few ditches and making a few mounds and dumping some wood trimmings on the ground. Nothing else can do that. And that's so infantile in what's possible. What I'm doing here is a scratch. A scratch in something that has the potential not to be the Grand Canyon, but to be something as, as monumentous as our solar system, and I've made a scratch. But I'm the only being, not me personally, but a human is the only one that can even make that scratch. And we can do it by making what amounts to scratches. We are the only species that can do this. We are the solution. The next thing is, if you start thinking regeneratively, you start taking a logical approach to these problems. So, there's a drought. Okay, then we need to make better use of the water that we have. Okay, what happens to the water now? It runs off of buildings and off of landforms into roads and streets, into holes, and through a treatment system that eventually usually ends up in the exact same place that our sewage ends up. If it doesn't, if it's a little bit better than that, it still goes into creeks and rivers, increases their flow, causes greater erosion to their banks, because we don't manage those right either, and dumps all of that water we could have used into the ocean. Okay, We've put in big reservoirs and dams everywhere, and that's only started to fix the problem, and we're still draining them. Okay, so that has reached its limits of functionality. That also requires a massive investment in infrastructure with money we're running out of and infrastructure resources we're running out of to, if we do put another one of these things in, to distribute that water back to where it came from. So the water lands on my house, ends up in a lake, 
500 miles away, and then it's pumped with energy back through a pipe to my house. Gee, that's a dumbass idea. Why don't we catch the water off the house and keep it where it fell? And even if we don't use it for drinking, why don't we use it to water our grass? Or why don't we get rid of our grass and grow our food? But we'll leave that for now, even if we just watered our grass with it. And stop drawing water from this system so far away. Because we know that what, what, the, what the bureaucrat will say is, but if the water doesn't fall off your house, go down a storm drain and get to the lake, the lake won't fill up as much. Well, they open the lake all the time in heavy downpours because it gets too full already. The problem isn't how much goes in, it's how much is taken out versus the capacity that it can hold. Therefore, holding this water back isn't really as harmful as we're led to believe. Oh, by the way... All the shit that goes with it into the lake is a problem. It leads to algal blooms and things like that. So that would help rectify that problem. Additionally, so little of that water actually gets there. By the time it runs across the land, runs through drains, gets into a stream, gets absorbed into banks, gets stuck in swamps, etc., it's not a significant amount of the water that actually lands on my roof that really gets to the lake 500 miles away that has a pipe all the way back to my house to pump the water back to my house after it goes through a treatment plant when it was perfectly clean when it fell out of the air in the first place. And it's actually a lower quality now than it was the day that it fell as rain. So, if that's the case, the solution is to catch and hold as much water as possible where it falls so it can be used by the people that catch it. And if that's the case, they'll draw less resource from the public resource, and therefore there'll be less strain on it, and it will do more good for the public that it's intended for. What's the problem there? It's the first step in saying to the entire apparatus that exists only for the purpose of impounding water and treating it and pumping it back to where it came from, we don't need you as much as we used to. And thereby begins to, to, to threaten what? the sustainability of that system. Not the sustainability of the lake. The lake becomes far more sustainable with this model. The sustainability of the bureaucracy and the public works and the jobs and the industry built around the concept that that lake needs to exist, not so that I can go out there and catch a fish, but so that from 500 miles away my water can be pumped through a pipe back to my house where the water started. So, as soon as we start down the pathway of understanding, I am a positive force, I am a force for regeneration, I am a native to this planet, and I can do good for this planet, we immediately begin to examine problems from a standpoint that leads us to decentralization. That is so dangerous to the establishment. Because every single problem that you begin to solve, even partially for yourself, tells you more and more, I don't need them, I don't need them. I don't need them. Or at least, I don't need them as much as I thought I did for this, and I don't need them as much as I thought I did for that, and I don't need them as much as I thought I did for this, and I don't need them all for that. And how difficult then does it begin to become to control you? As soon as centralized resource control dwindles, centralized psychological control dwindles and yes sustainability is what they want but sustainability means things stay the way they are regeneration means change and trust me if the more power you have the more wealth you have and the more, more control of other people you have the more you have to fear from change the less you have the less you have to fear from change 
That's why you'll see that the higher a person moves in the echelon of wealth, the more they fear, fear change. Rapidly, the wealthy go from being instruments of positive change to instruments of control and mitigation of change. There's a, I don't know exactly what the number is, but you see people that are billionaires. Billionaires investing in real environmentalism, doing real good stuff for the planet, not greenwashing. And then there's a place where they slip into this club, the big club that you're not in, those of you that know the George Carlin routine. And once they go into that club, then we'll talk about it, we'll pander to it, we'll greenwash it, but we won't do it anymore. Because if we actually fix the problem, we decentralize the resources and therefore we decentralize the control. And our existence stems from centralized control. Are you starting to see how big a problem this really is? The truth of regeneration philosophy is we are natural cultivators who have gotten lost. The human being in his natural form is a cultivator. He's as much a cultivator as the ant that gathers leaves, that brings them into the ground, that generates mold, that the ant feeds upon for a time. And when the ant leaves behind that home and creates a new one, the environment is better, not worse than it was before. He never defoliates the tree till it's not there anymore, and it's an ant. It's not the, actually the smartest thing in the world, but it, it, leafcutter ants do not defoliate trees to the point where they die. They actually encourage growth in trees, just the same way you do when you prune. And when they leave behind, what they leave behind, they've increased the fungal network massively. In fact, even while they're there in the mound, the fungus they're growing contribute to the overall fungal growth in the ecology and contribute to the overall fungal growth in the, in the rainforest, subtropical and tropical regions that they exist in. That ant is a cultivator, so are you. Human waste seems like a problem. But as hunter-gatherers, when we walked around and you just took a dump in the woods, we were actually a source of fertility. And human beings have a natural inclination to go, I don't want to step in that, so I'm going to bury it. That's not advanced technology. Felines do that, and other creatures do as well, but cats bury their crap. <laughs> You're a natural cultivator. You're a native species of this planet. Your natural actions, your innate actions, if you were just put out into the wilderness, once you learn to basically survive in a small band, would be immensely proactive to that ecosystem evolving to something far more fertile and far more useful to yourself and all of the wildlife around you. Even though there's a lot of things out there, don't take this the wrong way. Mother Nature, in the end, is a bitch. She will kill you dead. She'll give you everything you need, and if you, if you make one mistake... The consequences of not understanding need versus danger is death. She'll freeze you to death. She'll send something to chomp on you and eat you. She'll drop a branch on your head. She'll kill you with a storm. Mother Nature's a bitch. This is an airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky, rainbow-farting bullshit, guys. Okay, But we, in the see, because the earth doesn't care when uh, a rabbit dies or a person dies. Death and life are part of the cycle. Now, what happened was, as a species, we evolved technology-wise more rapid than we did with our understanding of our impacts. And by the time we began to understand the impacts, we were so vested in the population growth, the technology, and the control of the two that we're unwilling to be rational and back up and let the technology begin to match our understanding. 
Because if we do that, again, we start putting individuals in control. Greater control goes down. From a national level, you got to look at it this way. The federal government has less power, and therefore the states have more governmental power. But there's a cascade. See, once that begins to occur, there's a cascade failure of the whole system of control. It's like when the matrix falls apart. right? So then the state has more power, but yet it has also lost power. And that falls to, let's say, the county level. But the county can't possibly do all the things the state and the federal government did. They don't have the resources. Like, if you ever notice when a city fails, it's always the county that has enough resources to fill the gap until the city can get back on its feet. Each echelon up, since it steals from more, has more power. So as power begins to drop down, more and more of the things that were controlled simply cannot be controlled. So the county has to go, well... We can only absorb so much of the things the state formally did, and then it falls to the city, and the city says, well, hell, we can't do any of that shit. We never wanted it anyway. But then the city is sitting there with a population that has these, these, these three hierarchical levels of control that have fallen, and the people of the city start to go, wait a minute. I don't think we want this anymore. And the city, the control is the quickest and easiest to change. Simple 1% of the vote flips that at the democratic process. And there's, there's enough people doing something, even if you say it's illegal, it doesn't work. The law has no teeth if it can't be enforced, if nobody cares anymore. Now, there's still laws on the books about things like men carrying lanterns in front of cars. No one gives a shit. We evolved past the law, and they just never took the law off the books. This is, this is the process that begins when you begin a natural cultivation decentralization process. We also start to learn as we do that that we can produce our own food, our own medicine, our own fibers, our own fuels, and our own fertility. Maybe we don't want to produce it all, but that we can. See, the control mechanism that we exert over society is actually really, really simple, and it comes down to four things. The first one is fear, and the second is scarcity. And one begats the other. If I make you afraid, you see scarcity. If I make you see scarcity, you, you have fear. Okay. So even when something is radically abundant like water, it's necessary for me to convince you that it's not. And I might even create an artificial scarcity through this broken concept of engineering. Let's take all the water away. Oh, now it's scarce. I know that I caused it, but now I can use it. So... Understand, those two are, are twins. They're the root of control. Fear and scarcity. And if I make you afraid of anything, you'll start to worry about scarcity. If you think a storm's coming, you run to the store and hoard bread. Right? If you go to the store and you don't know that a storm's coming, but the bread aisle's almost empty, you probably grab a couple loaves. See how simple that is? Now, if that's that simple... Don't you think people controlling society would find it way too tempting not to use that? People that will pass all of these laws controlling all these aspects of your life, do you think they would ignore something this simplistic? Now, these breed two other things. If you're afraid and you see scarcity, then someone else must have what you don't. That raises the pillar of resentment. And resentment has a twin called anger. I resent that you have more than I do, 
Therefore, I'm angry with you because you've caused the scarcity and I'm going to go to the state with my fear and ask them to take from you and give on to me because that's all that I can do. And I now have a society literally by the figurative ball sack. I can make that society do anything that I want. I can make it give up its liberties. I can make it give up its freedoms. I can make it call for itself to be oppressed. And this is one of the, this environmental component to it is one of the main tenets that it's used for this control. Because we've forgotten that we can produce our own food, medicines, fibers, fuels, and fertility. The fertility doesn't have to come from a bag that can come from the same backyard that needs it. That it, it can literally be regenerative. That we can cycle systems. That the biggest reason to have a chicken in your backyard isn't the eggs. It's because if I cycle the things I can't consume through the chicken, instead of oxidizing in the gas, they become fertility for the land. And it becomes, it becomes regenerative. It doesn't stay the way it is. It keeps getting better. Okay, so now I don't need the bag of fertilizer anymore. I still need the bag of chicken feed. Small systems are working on that, but a couple chickens don't need much feed from off-site. And somebody somewhere will address that need if that need becomes sufficient to warrant addressing. Right now, the big agricultural companies don't want non-GMO, beyond organic, all of those things. Because those things can't feed the world from a centralized authority. But, but, but the things that they want to do can for a time. They can be sustainable for a time. And therefore, out to 2050 at least, we can remain in control. And our heirs will figure out how to have control after that. We've done our jobs. We'll kick the can. That's sustainable. If we regenerate, we lose. If we create systems that actually get better in time, the needs of the population decline. And therefore, the control of the population goes into decline. This is all so simple. It should make you angry. Because you've been lied to your entire life so that you can be controlled. I know you. some of you are like, man, he's way out there. I'm not. You can't logically refute anything that I've told you today. Other than you could, you could try to make a logical refutement of the motivations. But that would have to mean that I'm able to see all this as a redneck and then all the people in government that are at the highest levels constantly spitting out marketing and propaganda that pits us against each other are just too stupid to see it. That would mean I'm the smartest man in the United States outside of the world of physics and things like that because these guys, those guys don't think about this. But out of everybody in government, I'm smarter than every single person in our government or employed by them. I do have an ego. I'll admit it. I don't have that big of an ego. I think there's a hell of a lot of people a hell of a lot smarter than me. And that's why I feel if I can see and understand this, that the people that, that have the psychopathic tendencies to want to control others and the high IQs to go along with it and the ability to purchase high IQs to tell them what's going on, well, they can see it too. Of course they can. The next fact of sustainability is we are the solution. So our only hope is to do more good, not less bad. The only way we can fix all of these problems is to take action, not call for someone else to.
If we are the problem, then the solution is controlling us. Right? Okay? Think, just think about how simple this is. If human beings are the problem, then they need control so that they don't exceed the threshold of their problem creation to the point where they become their own detriment. Okay? If we are the solution, then human beings need education. They need to be empowered. They need the liberty and freedom to do the things that make the situation better. They need to take control. And they need to see to their own needs. And they need to understand that the solutions are at the end of their arms with those five little things they can wiggle around on both hands. So there's ten of them. There's your solution right there, your hands. And you take your hands, put it on your face. Inside your face, inside your head, is a brain. That brain, coupled with the actions of those hands, put your hands on your knees, those legs that can move you around, right? The powers of observation through sight, smell, hearing. Some of us even have impediments. We can't walk or we can't see or we can't hear. But we have the other things. And we have other people who can compensate where we're weak. I can see other things. I can see things intellectually that others cannot. I can perceive a solution, but I may not know how to mechanically implement it. But someone else with engineering knowledge might be able to do a much better job of a mechanical implementation if my power of observation is then used to make them understand what I've observed. Oh, that's what you want to do. Well, here's how you do that. Simple. And that same, and, and I'm actually visually impaired. I can barely see out of my left eye. I have limited vision in my right eye. Not really, really bad. But I, I, you know, when I put my glasses on, I see a hell of a lot better when it comes to reading things at a distance than I do without them. So I have that visual limitation. Yet I can still see what many people can't see in patterns and in solutions. So that's my job, to see those patterns and solutions and to implement them. And when I can't implement them, to get others to come in and help implement them. And some people can't see the pattern. They can't see the problem, at least at the beginning. But they can understand it when it's explained to them. And they have the, the knowledge to put a dam in a place where you didn't think you could. Or to tell you, don't do that. That's a, that's a bad place for that to go. Trust me. I know what you're trying to accomplish. I totally get it. But that's not where you want to do that. This, this soil structure here, you can grow trees in it. But you don't want to hold water back with it. It's going to result in a disaster, right? They have that knowledge, and we need to have more of this individualized, self-assembled communities. And some of them will think they know what they're doing and screw it up. But here's the thing: if we decentralize, and Group A does five good things and five things that don't work, we've learned how to do five good things, and the five things that didn't work don't really cause that much damage. They don't destroy the world. They don't completely change the policy of an entire country. And if Group B does those five things that Group A failed at well and fails at the other five things, then it's a wash and everybody can look and go, here's ten things we can do now that we didn't know we could do before and here's how they work. And then Group C can say, I think I can improve on number two. And I think I can improve on number five. And they take those two and they try to do it. And they do really good with two and they fail with five. Well, now two got better, and five at least stayed where it was. And again, how big of an area, how large of a group of people were impacted by the mistake? When you decentralize authority, you decentralize 
and thereby mitigate the impacts of the negative, and you showcase the positive. That's why we have to take a regenerative view of these things. We have to do more good. And if we do that, then our footprints become positive. Then we would want to go to places where we're not now. One of the things that a lot of people say when you tell them about pending environmental doom that we are looking at, especially from the food system, look at all the land that's out there with nobody doing anything with it. It's just forest. And the environmentalists say, we must protect the forest from the people. And then the, the person that doesn't understand says, well, just cut all those trees down and put more corn in. It'll be fine. Some innovator will come along and figure out how to farm land that we can't farm. You guys do that in permaculture all the time. What's the problem? Yeah. If we're sustaining what we're doing, everywhere we go, we create negative consequences. Do you understand that? If we sustain what we're doing, everywhere we go, we bring negative consequences and impacts with us. And therefore, the problem becomes bigger and affects more people and affects more of the planet. If we become regenerative, then we can look at a forest that's non-productive and say, we can turn that into productivity. Not by cutting everything down, turning it into paper and some scrap, scrap lumber, and planting a bunch of pine trees that will all grow in straight lines, and monocropping timber. We can actually go into that system and make it more productive for us, more ecologically diverse, have greater wildlife, provide greater habitat, and provide greater yields. And we can put it into a multi-generational management. To do that, we have to think, I am a force for good as an individual, and my species, when properly behaving, is a force for good as a whole. That's regenerative. And this is sedition this is this is insurrectionist thinking and what I want to finish today with is a quote from the founder of permaculture Bill Mollison <laughs> when Bill was told that some people say he is somewhat seditious with the permaculture movement very very early on in the movement he said yes it was very perceptive I teach self-reliance, the world's most subversive practice. I teach people to grow their own food, which is shockingly subversive. So yes, it's seditious, but it's peaceful sedition. You wonder, some of you guys that come here for the survival stuff, and you hear me talk a lot about permaculture, why I'm so into it. Because I am an insurrectionist. I am absolutely sick and tired of a half of a quarter of a percent of the people of the world controlling the rest of it. I am sick and tired of our people in every nation being stratified into classes and subsets that are then aggravated and set upon each other so that the state and the industry can come in together and mitigate those divisions, acting as a mediator to their benefit and to our loss. We call that fascism, by the way. And that's how every modern government is run today. You have classical fascism, the government is in control, and the industries follow the government's lead. So the hand of the government is higher in the doling out of money. And now we have neo-fascism in our country. They, they tell you it's democracy in a modern republic, but all it is is the hand switched. 
The hand of industry now is above the hand of government. Because the industries fund the government. Rather than with bribes, full-on fund the government. Full-on fund the propaganda. Full-on fund the marketing. Every single person up there, guys, is bought and paid for. And they're in different parties and they're bought and paid for by the same people. Well, this is by this corporation and this is by that corporation. Yeah, but guess what? This corporation that, that you hate owns both of them. And thereby owns the people they bought. See, when you buy somebody, you own them. If I came to your house and said, here's how it's going to work. Tom, I'm going to give you $50,000. I want you to do the following things for me. And you say, no, not worth it. Okay, Tom, I'm going to leave my $50,000. If it ended there, it'd be fine. But if I show up and go, I'm going to give you $50,000. And I need you to do a couple things for me that aren't that bad. You look at it and go, you know what, Tom? Or you know what, Jack? That's that's okay. I'll take the money. Here's your $50,000. You do what I told you to do. Great. Come back next year and go, need you to do a couple more things for me? Here's another check for $50,000. You say, yeah, I, uh, okay. I come back in year three and I say, uh, I need you to do a few more things for me. And this year's check's $100,000. Here you go, Tom. Here's your $100,000. You're doing it. And in ten years... You're so dependent upon my money. Especially if you have competitors, and I and my, my lackeys are doing the same with them. I'm raising the bar for everybody. I'm raising the bar for everybody and what's possible. And thereby you need me, and now I control you. And now I'll come back to you in 10 years and say, I need you to do these things for me. And you say, I can't do them. Can't do them. Because I've already said I wouldn't. And I say, well, we're going to give you some cover fire so that you can do it and get away with it. And here's your check for half a million dollars. And by the way, if you if you don't do it, then you're not getting the half a million dollars. And somebody else will get the half a million dollars. We'll put them in here and they're going to do it anyway. Your politicians are a bunch of prostitutes. And the pimps are the lobbyists and the corporatocracy. What do you think that makes you as long as you follow their system? Yeah, I'm for sedition because I am for not conforming to that paradigm any longer. And I believe that the best way you can do that is to realize that you are not a negative force. You're a positive force. You're a native species. I don't care if you have a little bitty lot. If you start actually cultivating some of, some of your own food and your medicine and your fuel your fertility in your backyard. You just take a walk in it every day and watch it get better and better and better. You'll start to realize that that pattern could be replicated in so many other things. And you'll realize that every time you come to a solution that you know would work, the biggest obstacle isn't money. It's regulation. It's authority. It's control. Money is a problem that can almost always be solved one way or another. These other things are far more permanent, sustainable structures, these regulations and these rules. The next time you hear somebody talk about sustainability, I want you to think about how sustainability compares to being regenerative. To actually put systems in place that if you died and went away, they would not only sustain, but continue to get better. If somebody went to Mark Shepard's New Forest Farm and abducted him and his family 
took them away and buried them in a hole in the ground somewhere and bought his farm and simply put up no trespassing signs around it. In a hundred years, you could walk in there and there would still be a yield. And not only would there still be yields, there would be still be yields that Mark and his family established. And the soil and the ecology would be better. It might be overgrown. There might be places where things have outcompeted other things. But the fertility would be higher a hundred years from today than it is right now if nobody did anything. That is not sustainable. Mark calls it restoration agriculture. But the restoration is to the end of regeneration. Where we are an active component in making things better every day. That's seditious insurrectionist thinking. Self-sufficiency and self-reliance are liberating because they remove power from the people that you've depended on until now. And as long as you depend on them, they still have the power. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
redemption. 